كل العلوم سوى القرآن مشغلة إلا الحديث وإلا الفقه في الدين العلم ما كان فيه قال حدثنا الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين So normally on a Tuesday we would do بلوغ المرام and in بلوغ المرام we finished كتاب الزكاة and we said the next natural chapter that comes next is كتاب الصيام the chapter of fasting so rather than start the chapter of fasting now, we want to delay the chapter of fasting until Ramadan. And that will just mean that we're studying about fasting just before Ramadan comes. It makes more sense for everybody. So we're going to do some slightly different topics now outside of Bulugh al-Maram. And our topic for today, inshallah, and for the next couple of weeks, is we're going to take some of the ahadith from the introduction to Sunan ibn Majah. Sunan ibn Majah is the sixth of the six books of hadith. Do you know the six books of hadith? Can you name them? The six books of hadith. They start with the easy ones. Start with the easy ones. The two most authentic of them. Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. And then we have the four, what they call the four Sunan. What are those four? At-Tirmidhi, Jami' At-Tirmidhi. Ibn Majah is the last one. Abi Dawood, An-Nasai, and Ibn Majah. The last of them is Sunan Ibn Majah. And Sunan Ibn Majah was actually not the last one. Originally the last one was Muatta of Imam Malik, but this book... The Sunan of Ibn Majah has many hadith in it that are not found in the other five books. So there's a great benefit in it being included in the six books of hadith. When we say six books of hadith, do we mean that they're the only six books? That's it. Every hadith of the Prophet is either in one of these six books. No. There are many, many books of hadith. Many, many hundreds of books of hadith. But the six that are the main books that the majority of what you need in terms of your life as a Muslim, your rulings and so on, most of them you'll find in these six books of hadith. The reason we chose Sunan Ibn Majah for this particular class is because Ibn Majah introduced his Sunan with a series of chapters about holding on to the Sunnah of the Prophet and he gave this as an introduction. We know it's an introduction because really the Sunan books are ordered like fiqh books. So you have Tahara and then you have Salah and then you have Zakah and then they're books of fiqh really. They're books of hadith in the order of the books of, of, the books of fiqh. So when he starts with Babu Tiba'i Sunnati Rasulillahi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the chapter of following the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, then we realize that this is not really the main part of the book. This is the muqaddimah, the introduction. So he's given you an introduction 
And of course, what's his book? A book of hadith. Hadith musnada, not just hadith like bulugh al-maram without any chains, a hadith that have chains of narration that lead up from him all the way to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And then he's going to bring the hadith. And as his introduction, what he started with is he started with a series of chapters on holding on to the sunnah, the importance of the sunnah, and following the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The very first chapter is Babu Tiba'i Sunnati Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the chapter of following the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Before we start, what does the word sunnah mean to you? The word sunnah. A lot of meanings, you'll not be wrong. I think you've got a lot, you'll have a lot of different ideas in your head. Don't let those guys who are watching on YouTube uh, go to sleep. Yeah? Make sure those guys are commenting as well. So, what does the word sunnah mean to you? Okay, to follow. To follow what? Sayings and actions. Okay, good. So that's one uh, one usage of the word sunnah is ma udifa ila nabi That which is attributed to the Prophet from the sayings, the actions, approval, and description. Four things that make up the sunnah: what he said, what he did, what he approved of, and his description. That makes up the sunnah. But can we be more general than that? What is a sunnah Just generally What anyone's Is sunnah Allah said فَقَدْ مَضَتْ سُنَّةُ الْأَوَّلِينَ The sunnah of the early people Has gone by No the word sunnah Is a way of life Excellent Sunnah is a way of life Is very good We could definitely use that A seerah A way Like a person's A person's life Their history Definitely we could use the word sunnah for seerah Like the poet said uh, The first one to be content with a sunnah Is the one who sets the example of it So we could use the word example as well The sunnah as being an example You follow Okay, you can put that one on the screen just as a benefit because they did get it right. But we're trying to be a bit more general right now. We're trying to go a little bit more general. So we said uh, uh, someone's seerah, their biography, an example uh, like man sanna fil islami sunnatan hasana, whoever gives a good example in Islam, sets a good example in Islam, will have the reward of it. Uh, like, the, like in the same hadith, sunnah sayyah, a bad example. Whoever sets a bad example. Uh, what else do we have? Like uh, we said, uh, and, oh, and also the way you do something, tariqah, the way you do something can also be called a sunnah. Sunnatullah, the sunnah of Allah, in the way that Allah does things. The sunnah of Allah is that He doesn't punish until He sends a messenger. Right? Sunnatullah. That Allah doesn't punish until he sends a messenger That's the, the norm The normal way that Allah does things He doesn't punish people till he sends them A messenger, a warner And then after that the punishment will come 
Okay. وَمَا كُنَّ مُعَذِّبِينَ حَتَّى نَبَعَثَ رَسُولًا Okay, good. So, sunnah also people often use, I'm surprised no one mentioned it from a fiqh point of view, like the things that are not wajib. Yeah, like a lot of people also talk about the word sunnah, like as in, uh, that which you are rewarded for doing, but you're not punished for leaving. Mustahab, we call it. But sometimes people use the word sunnah, your sunnah prayers. Have you done your sunnah prayers? Meaning the prayers that you don't have to do, but they're recommended for you to do. Here, the word sunnah means the complete guidance of the Prophet al-kamil, The complete guidance of everything the Prophet guided us to. This is the meaning of sunnah here. And that's when we talk about the Qur'an and the sunnah. The Qur'an and the sunnah. Allah gave us two revelation, two forms of revelation. Kitabullah and the sunnah of the Prophet Both of those two are revelation, right? Allah didn't give us one revelation. So how, many, how many revelations were given to, the, to Islam and the Muslims? The Prophet was given the Qur'an and the sunnah. وَذْكُرْنَ مَا يُتْلَى فِي بُيُوتِكُنَّ مِنْ آيَاتِ اللَّهِ وَالْحِكْمَةِ Remember what is recited in your homes of the ayat of Allah and the hikmah, yani the sunnah. It's revelation from Allah. Allah gave the ayat, Allah gave the hikmah, Allah gave the sunnah. وَمَا يَنْطِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَىٰ إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا وَحْيٌ يُوحَىٰ He doesn't speak from his own desire. It's a revelation that is revealed. So here when Imam Ibn Majah here, he's a scholar of hadith, but he's not talking about sunnah as in what the Prophet said. And did he's talking about it in general, the heady of the Prophet, the guidance, the guidance of what he, his whole way of life, the way that he guided, what he guided us to, his instructions, his commands. And we have to follow those. And he's going to bring a hadith uh, to prove it and to tell us about it. Now, I'm not going to read the chains for all of that hadith, but I do want to start by reading the chain because I do want you to appreciate these hadith are not just mentioned. Like that, the Prophet said. Ibn Majah himself, the Qazwini, he says, Haddathana Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba. He said that Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba, he narrated this to me. So now Ibn Majah, he's not telling, I found this in a book over there. This was in my library. Ibn Abi Shayba, Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba, was in front of me and he spoke these words to me. Qala haddathana Sharik. He said to me that Sharik was in front of him and said to him, and Sharik, Nakhai rahimahullah ta'ala, he sat in front of Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba and he narrated to him. Then Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba took it and narrated it to Abi Abdullah, to the Al Hafiz uh, Ibn Majah. Rahimahullah ta'ala. Sharik said, and in Amash, he said that I this was this was this came from this narration came from Al Amash, Sulaiman ibn Mahran, and Abi Salih, and from him it came from Abu Salih and Abi Hurairah. And Abu Salih he took it from Abi Hurairah radiallahu anhu. The companion Abu Hurairah, who is Abdurrahman ibn Sakhar. And Abu Hurairah, by the way, is the Sahabi who has the most hadith. 
out of all of the companions, he, he records the most, narrates the most hadith, over 5,000 hadith. He narrated from the Prophet ﷺ, but he only sp spent a very small time with him. So how could he spend a small time and narrate so many hadith when Abu Bakr spent such a long time and Abu Bakr's hadith are only a fraction of Abu Hurairah? What do you think? Okay, one thing is Abu Hurairah had waqt faragh. He had free time. Yeah, because he was from the poor people who lived in the masjid. From Ahl al-Suffa. The very, very poor people who came and who extremely, lived in extreme poverty. And he lived on the side of the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. But he didn't have anywhere to live. And subhanAllah, they, he had free time. And he mentions this himself, that Quraysh, they were tradesmen. And the Ansar in Medina, they were farmers. He said, and me, <laughs> I had nothing to do. I was, except to memorize the hadith of the Prophet The second reason, the Prophet made dua for him to memorize his hadith. He made dua for, for, for his memory. He was sitting in the masjid one day. And he saw, the Prophet was sitting and Abu Hurairah was there. And he said, why don't you make dua so that I can say ameen? Because the Prophet's dua is accepted, sallallahu Generally speaking, it's very, very rare that Allah didn't accept a dua of the Prophet, sallallahu directly. So the Prophet, sallallahu said, why don't you make a dua and I will say ameen? So there was two of them, but Abu Hurairah was one and he said, I ask Allah for knowledge that is not forgotten. And the Prophet, said, ameen. And after that, his, he became in hifth. And he, subhanAllah, he memorized. And also, likewise, we even as time went on, it's not that Abu Bakr didn't have these hadith. It's that Abu Bakr became busy with the Khilafah, with ruling the Muslims. And he, even the time, not just the time to learn, but even the time to sit and convey. And also, the Sahaba used to teach each other. So it wasn't a problem. If Abu Bakr had a hadith and he taught it to Abu Hurairah, and Abu Hurairah narrated it, they didn't see any problem in that, in just teaching each other. So... In reality, many, many of these hadith perhaps came originally from those uh, companions, but each one of them, they taught each other and they narrated to each other. So Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu, he narrated that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, قَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ sallallahu alayhi wa sallam مَا أَمَرْتُكُمْ بِهِ فَخُذُوا وَمَا نَهَيْتُكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُوا Whatever I command you, take it. And whatever I forbid you from, stop. So the first question I have, this hadith resembles an ayah. What's the ayah that it resembles? It's very close to the wording of an ayah in the Quran. Ayn Surat Al-Hashar, I think. وَمَا آتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُذُوهُ وَمَا نَهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُ وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ شَدِيدُ الْعِقَابِ Whatever the messenger gives you, take it. Whatever he forbids you from, keep away from it. Now this word ma, whatever, is from the general words, right? There's no exception to the rule. Everything the Prophet gives you, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, take it. Everything that he tells you not to do, stop doing it. 
And I'll give you a, an amazing example. There was a woman, she came to one of the companions. She came to ask about the women who pluck their eyebrows. And she said that I don't find the ruling for plucking the eyebrows anywhere in the Qur'an. He said it's in the Qur'an. She said, I went from the Qur'an, from Fatiha to Nas. I don't see any ruling about plucking the eyebrows in the Qur'an. He said, it's in the Qur'an. He said, where? He said, وَمَا آتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُذُوا وَمَا نَهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُوا Whatever the messenger gives you, take it. And whatever he forbids you from, stop. What the Prophet say about plucking the eyebrows? May Allah curse the woman who tattoos and the one who has a tattoo done and the one who plucks women's eyebrows and the one who has it plucked. And there's no difference in women and men in this. There's no difference. And the, may Allah curse the one who plucks the eyebrows and the one who has them plucked. Whatever the Prophet gives you, take it. Whatever he gives you, take it. Don't say that I don't find it in the Qur'an. I don't find it. We're going to come to that later on. The people who said, I didn't find it in the Qur'an. It's in the Qur'an. Whatever the messenger gives you, take it. And what he stops you from, stop doing it. That's what the Qur'an tells you to do with regard to the sunnah of the Prophet. So why did Ibn Majah bring this hadith in the chapter of following the sunnah then? What's it got to do with following the sunnah? If you're going to give this hadith a title, like a chapter title or a heading, what heading would you put for this hadith? Whatever I command you with, take it, and whatever I forbid you from, stop. What would you put as a chapter title for this hadith? If you were going to give it a, a, like a, a title, what could you say about it? It's in the chapter following the sunnah. Do we have any ideas from the uh, guys watching on YouTube? Okay, obedience to the messenger. I would give it a title like something like absolute obedience or that obedience to the Prophet is in everything or you follow following the Prophet in everything. So there is no difference between pro pro uh, prohibitions and commands. There's no difference in whether it's something he told you or something he told you not to do. To do, not to do. And there's no exception to the rule. There's no time where you say, I'm sorry, we follow him, but you know, only up to a point. You follow him in everything. Whatever he told you to do, whatever he told you not to do. That's the meaning of Muhammadur Rasulullah. Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. So we've understood that hadith. We'll move on to the next hadith. Our next hadith, I'll give you the chain as well. I want just to appreciate in the beginning. I'm not going to give a chain for every hadith, but I want to appreciate that this Ibn Majah has, is bringing you every person that told him that hadith up until the Prophet That's how our hadith was stored. They were not just written down like that, like just somebody wrote them down. Like you know how the, the rabbis wrote the... the the Torah and the Talmud after a long time it got lost and then people just from their memory just wrote without any chain, without any... No, it's not like that. Everything has a chain. 
Ibn Majah, he says, Qala haddathana Muhammad ibn Sabbah. He said, Muhammad ibn Sabbah, he, in front of me, he narrated this hadith to me. Qala akhbarana Jarir. He said, we were informed by Jarir. And in Amash, from Al-Amash, Suleiman ibn Muhran, and Abi Salih, from Abu Salih, and Abi Hurairah. Again, from Abi Hurairah, radiyallahu an. In the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, ذَرُونِي مَا تَرَكْتُكُمْ فَإِنَّمَا هَلَكَ مَنْ كَانَ قَبْلَكُمْ بِسُؤَالِهِمْ وَاخْتِلَافِهِمْ عَلَىٰ أَنْبِيَائِهِمْ فَإِذَا أَمَرْتُكُمْ بِشَيْءٍ فَخُذُوا مِنْهُ مَا اسْتَطَعْتُمْ وَإِذَا نَهَيْتُكُمْ عَنْ شَيْءٍ فَانْتَهُوا The Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, Leave me That's the literal meaning. Leave me as long as I leave you. Now I'm going to continue with the hadith and then I'm going to come back and ask you what that first sentence means. Leave me for as long as I leave you. Varuni. You know, leave me alone. Varuni. As long as I leave you. Then he said, what destroyed the only thing that destroyed the people before you was their questioning and differing with their prophets. So when I command you to do something, do as much as you can. And when I prohibit you from something, keep away from it. So having heard the hadith, going back now to the first, question, first statement, leave me or leave me alone as long as I leave you. The thing, the only thing that destroyed the people before you was their questioning and differing with their prophets. No, it's not the ones who don't want to listen. It's a good try. It's not the ones who don't want to listen. This is, a jet. This is for the Sahaba. See, the Sahaba, I'll give you a clue. The Sahaba were in a very unique position when they would ask questions about things. What was different for them and us now? If you ask me a question, does anything in Islam change? Does halal become haram or haram become... <laughs> Whatever you want to ask me, the religion of Islam is like that. That's, it doesn't change by what I think. But now, there's a story and I'll give you an example. There's a companion came to the Prophet ﷺ and he asked about the Hajj. He said, Afi kulli amin ya Rasulullah. He said, every year, O Messenger of Allah, the Prophet turned away from him. Leave me alone. If I've left you alone, leave me alone. He said, Shall I make Hajj every year, O Messenger of Allah? He turned away from him. He said, Shall I make Hajj every year? Then the Prophet became angry. He said, If I say yes, now you'll have to do it every year and you will not be able to do it. So the meaning is not the questions of the religion, which is to seek some clarification about something or whatever, but a question that can bring upon you an additional hardship or additional burden, right? Because if he, if he answers, it's going to add now. Allah has left things for you in this religion. Allah has left things that you were supposed to do, but Allah left them as a rahmah for you. Allah let it go. This is mentioned in the Quran. Ya amanu, la tas'alu an ashya'a in tubadalakum tasukkum. 
or you who believe, don't ask about things that if they were to become apparent to you, they would make it hard for you. وَإِن تَسْأَلُوا عَنْهَا حِينَ يُنَزَّلُ الْقُرْآنِ تُبَدَلَكُمْ عَفَ اللَّهُ عَنْهَا And if you ask about them while the Qur'an is being revealed, they're going to become apparent for you and Allah has just left them go. Allah let it go for you. There are things in this religion that if you kept on asking and asking and asking, Allah would just keep on making more and more things obligatory for you. But Allah has left it for you as a mercy. So when it comes to these things, don't be like who? Who was, who was known for constantly asking for things? Which nation? Ah, okay, which people then? Which people of the book? All these ayat in Surah Al-Baqarah, they're talking about Ya Bani Bani Israel. They were known for this. They didn't leave what they were told. What did Allah say? وَإِذْ قَالَ مُوسَى لِقَوْمِهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُكُمْ أَنْ تَذْبَحُوا بَقَرَةً Musa said to his people, Allah commanded you to slaughter a cow. Go find a cow, slaughter the cow, Bismillah, finish. No, it's not finished for them. Tell us, make dua to Allah to tell us what kind of cow. Okay, now you have to find a cow that is not young and is not old. Just go and do what you've been told. No, they're not going to stop. Tell us what color cow shall it be? Okay. Now it's going to be a yellow cow that is pleasing to the beholder. Now go and do it. No, still. They said, why don't you make dua one more time to ask Allah what kind of cow it is because cows all look a bit similar to us. That's what they said. These cows all look a bit, they look a bit kind of similar. And inshallah we'll be guided. Then Allah put conditions upon them for this cow that made the religion very hard upon them. And it said that they almost bankrupted themselves to find the cow that Allah commanded them to slaughter. Whereas in the beginning any cow would have sufficed. This is the questioning that was forbidden in Islam. And it was forbidden to the Sahaba, not to those after them. Because for us now, even if you ask a hundred times about what kind of sheep in the zakah, what kind of cow, what kind, it, what I answer, you will not change the deen. The deen is, khalas, is finished, it's done. Yeah, it's complete. But at that time, don't make things difficult upon yourselves by bringing Hardship on yourselves. In tasukum. If these things actually come back for you, they're gonna make things hard. You're not gonna like it. Shall I make Hajj every year? Khalas, leave it. What the Prophet left for you, what he gave for you, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. That's it. Now leave it. That's it. He gave it for you. He told you go make Hajj. That's it. Go make Hajj. Don't make it unnecessarily hard for yourself, like Bani Israel. That's one thing. The second thing the Prophet mentioned is ikhtilaf, going against the Prophet. Not 
Just your job when it comes to the Prophet is to follow. That's your job. Your job is to follow. What's the evidence from the Quran that your job is to follow? وَمَا كَانَ it's not for a believing man or a believing woman. If Allah and his messenger decree something, you should have any choice in the matter. You don't have a choice. It's not your job to come and choose or to come and ask or to go the other way or choose. Your job is just to follow what you're told. The Prophet came with the road to Jannah. He came with the road to Jannah. He is the road to Jannah. All your job is to do is just go on it. That's it. Don't make a burden on yourself by now. Okay, why should I go like this? And look at the ikhtilaf. And I'll give you a simple example. When it comes to, for example, keeping the trousers above the ankles. You hear, wallahi, jidal, arguments, ikhtilaf, people just... Going at you, I'm not doing it out of pride, I'm not keeping it here, I might do no, I'm not doing it like this. That's not what is meant. Ya akhi, that's not your job. Do what you are told. The Prophet said, Ma nar. Whatever is under the ankles is in the fire. Khalas. You don't have now is what's my thought or what shall I think about? It? Let me analyze it, let me decide. Was it pride? Was it not pride? Akhi, that's it. You don't have now, you, it's not, you're not here to be given a choice and it's, you're not going to McDonald's to choose something from the menu. It's not like that, Yani. Oh, shall I go with this? Shall I go with that? Shall I have this? Shall I have that? Khalas, he told you, do it, do it. That's what Al-Hafidh ibn Majah is bringing to you here. The thing that destroyed people was constantly questioning and going against the prophets. Look at what happened in the battle of Uhud. One time they went against the Prophet And they didn't even do it deliberately They did it out of, a, out of goodness in their heart And they just wanted to go down and share the spoil But they went against the Prophet And 70 of the great companions of the Prophet were killed And the Muslims suffered a significant loss on that day Because they went against the Prophet one single time your job is to follow, not to have ikhtilaf about it. You're given a hadith, that's it. Just go with the hadith, take the hadith, bismillah, go, go for it. Learn from the previous nations. When you read Surah Al-Baqarah, you're reading about Bani Israel. They were given food from Jannah. What did they do? When they were given Al-Man was Salwa, what did they say? قَالُوا يَا مُوسَىٰ لَن نَصْبِرَ عَلَىٰ طَعَامٍ وَاحِدٍ فَادْعُوا لَنَا رَبَّكَ يُخُرِجْ لَنَا they said, we can't be patient with food like this. So you keep giving us food from Jannah, why are you giving us this food for? Can we just have lentils and onions and garlic? We want to have... See, they couldn't just take what they were given and just do it. Look at they, what they did about the Sabbath. Uh, the Sabbath. There has Al-Qariya, the, the village that was Hadirat al-Bahar, that was... On the, sea, on the shore of the, of the sea. And they were told, don't do work on the Sabbath. Don't do work on a Sabbat. On the Saturday, don't do the work. When their fish used to come on the Saturday, what did they say? On the day that they didn't, it wasn't Saturday, there was no fish. So they put their nets out on a Friday and they collected their nets on the Sunday with all their fish in. 
and Allah destroyed them. Allah said, Turn yourself into disgraced monkeys. Look, subhanAllah, just follow. Your job is just to follow. Why do you think as a Muslim that you are not going to be touched by the punishment that was touched to Bani Israel? Because you're doing the same thing as them. You're going to follow the same ways the people came before you. Shibran, shibran, dira and bidira. Hand by hand and arm by arm, you just go in the same like them. You can't just do what you're told and follow what you're told. So whenever I command you, the Prophet is explaining what to do. Okay, don't ask excessive the questions that are going to bring about a hardship on you. Don't go against the Prophet and start having ikhtilaf. Shall we do? No, can we do? I want to do mine a bit differently. I'm not going to do this. This is not what it means. There's another opinion about it. What should you do? Whenever I command you with something, do as much as you can. And whenever I forbid you something, keep away from it. Now, in this hadith, the Prophet makes a difference between what he told you to do and what he forbade you from doing. Why is there a difference between those two things? Why is there a difference between what you're told to do, do as much as you can, and what you're prohibited from, you're just told to stop doing it? You've been in this class before as well, come on. What's the difference? Why? Okay, are we back on with the microphone now? Okay, let me just try and uh, put it somewhere sensible. Okay. So, it was a very, very good try, the last one that they read out. What was the last one you read out, Abdurrahman? Yeah, some things are not obligatory. It's a good try, but that's not the answer, no. Okay, it's very good. You put these all on the screen. They're really, really good answers. The answer is that when it comes to doing things, there are often limitations to what you can do. There are things that are just outside of your ability. For example, you're told to stand in the prayer. But what do you do if you have, for example, an injured leg or, a, or an injured back, for example? You physically can't 
stand. Yeah, like there are many times you're told to do things where when you're told to do something, you can only do what you can do. That's not that, oh, you know, I can only pray twice a day because, you know, five times is hard. That's not the meaning. The meaning is not the limits you put for yourself in your mind. But there are physical, real limitations to what you can do. Many times, you know, you're told that you need to, uh, like we said, you need to stand in the prayer, but you've injured your back. So should you now not pray at all, or should you pray in the best way that you can? You pray in the best way you can, right? Now we see a lot of people making mistakes in this as well. We see people who've got a bad back and they pray completely sitting down every part of the prayer when actually they could do more than that. They could actually maybe, for example, they can stand but they can't make sujood. So they should stand when the standing time comes and just sit for the, for the sujood, for example, each according to their injury or according to their sickness. Uh, not everybody has to pray sitting on the chair all the time. What's the evidence? Fa'tu minhu mastata'atum or fa'khudu minhu mastata'atum. Do as much as you're able. It's a principle in Islam. When it comes to commands, you do the maximum that is within your ability. And by ability here, we don't mean your desire. That's what a lot of people misunderstand. They say, oh, you know, well, I'm, I'm not able to pray. I'm not able to pray more than three times a day. Why? Well, uh, you know, it's hot early morning. I'm just not, it's, not, it's not, not able. You don't want to. It's not you can't. It's that you just, don't, you just don't have the desire for it or the drive for it, whatever. But there's no real, there's no physical, real world reason why you can't do it. But there are many times in Islam where those reasons exist. So you do as much as you can. As for stopping to do something, no. When it comes to stopping to do something, talabul kef, you've been told to stop it. If you're doing something, nobody, if nobody is doing something and has an inability to stop it. If you're doing something, stopping it is just a case of not doing it anymore. It's not to say that there's never cases of, of inability, but generally speaking, inability comes when you're asked to do something. And generally, when you're asked to stop doing something, you just have to stop doing it, right? What about al-dururiyat, al-dururat, tubih? Okay, al-mahdurat. So what about the principle that necessities make things that are haram permissible? That's a principle. And this is, generally speaking, there's a principle in the religion of Islam. The whole religion of Islam is taken as a whole, right? We don't take part of the religion of Islam. Do you believe in part of the book, but you don't believe in the other part? So we have to take Islam as a whole. So when we take Islam as a whole, we see that, yes, this is the general rule. And there are some times where there are necessities that make things uh, permissible and so on. Are situations like that But those necessities have their uh, Time and place It's not, you don't build your religion Upon exceptions to the rule You learn the rule first and then you learn the exceptions To the rule, inshallah Our next hadith Al-Imam Ibn Majah, rahimahullah ta'ala He said, qala haddathana Abu Bakr Abu Shayba, qala haddathana Abu Mu'awiyah wa waqi' 
عن الأعمش عن أبي صالح عن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه أنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من أطاع من أطاعني فقد أطاع الله ومن عصاني فقد عصى الله عز وجل. He said that Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba narrated to me saying that Muawiyah and Waqi' Abu Muawiyah and Waqi' both narrated to him from Al-A'mash, from Abi Salih, from Abi Hurairah. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, whoever obeys me has obeyed Allah. And whoever disobeys me, and whoever has disobeyed, or whoever disobeys me has disobeyed Allah Azza wa Jal. You can't get a clearer statement than that, right? Whoever obeys me has obeyed Allah. And whoever disobeys me has disobeyed Allah, mighty and majestic. Okay, I've got a question then. Why is that the case? The Prophet is different. Prophet is a prophet. We don't worship him. So why is it that when he said, whoever obeys me has obeyed Allah? He speaks from revelation. He speaks from revelation. He doesn't speak from his own desire. He doesn't speak from his own opinion. He speaks from what Allah revealed to him. So when you disobey him, you are disobeying Allah. And when you obey him, you are obeying Allah. And a lot of people don't take this seriously enough. When it comes to the Quran, they're like, okay, you know, yeah, when we find in the Quran, we follow it. But when it comes to the Sunnah, they don't take it seriously enough. And they don't take it, you know, that it's such a serious thing. That they need to, you know, follow the sunnah And they should see the sunnah as being Something which is from Allah The same way that the Qur'an Or in the same way that the Qur'an is from Allah They differ in many things Because the Qur'an is the speech of Allah That was revealed to the Prophet And the sunnah generally speaking, mostly is from the speech of the Prophet ﷺ, apart from what he narrates from Allah. It's from the speech of the Prophet ﷺ. The Qur'an, we worship Allah by reciting it and so on. There are differences, but both of them come from Allah as revelation. We're not going to do all of the hadith, but we are going to come on to another hadith. Our next hadith, the Imam ibn Majah, he said, حَدَّثَنَا مُحَمَّدُ بن بَشَّارِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مُحَمَّدُ بن جَعْفَرِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا شُعْبَةً عَن عن أبيه رضي الله تعالى عنه أنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لا تزال طائفة من أمتي منصورين لا يضرهم من خذلهم حتى تقوم حتى تقوم الساعة. الإمام ابن ماجه brings this hadith with more than one uh, different wording. So I'm going to mention to you some of the different wordings of the hadith. The first hadith that we have, he said, there will not cease to be a group of my ummah who will be mansoreen. Mansoor comes from a nasr, right? Victorious. In victorious over their enemies because nasr generally is used for when you overcome your enemy. When the victory comes. There will not cease to be a group of my ummah who are victorious. 
they will not be harmed by those who man khadalahum. Those who, in there are lots of different narrations, those who betray them, those who oppose them, those who try to show enmity towards them, until the hour will come. Before we talk about the different narrations, this is really, really important because it's talking about what we call a ta'ifa al-mansura. A ta'ifa al-mansura. The ta'ifa al-mansura is a group of people who will continue to be victorious until the hour comes. Meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not allow them to be overcome and to be lost. There will be people who they seek to deceive them. There will be people who seek to oppose them. There will be people who seek to harm them. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give them, will give them victory. In another wording that Ibn Majah mentions, لا يزال, لا تزال طائفة من أمتي قوامة على أمر الله عز وجل لا يضرها من خالفها He said, there will not cease to be a group among my ummah who are standing firmly upon the command of Allah Azza wa Jal. They will not be harmed by the people who oppose them. Now the people who oppose them here can be inside or outside of the ummah. Because the fact they're a ta'ifa, they're a group of the ummah, indicates that there will be other groups within the ummah, right? There will be other groups. Many other groups, as we're going to hear later on in the hadith. Many other groups that will be from the, who will oppose them, who will go against them. You're going to see a lot of differing. But there will not cease to be a group of people that are upon the truth. A group of people that are given victory by Allah. A group of people that are not harmed by those who oppose them, nor by those who try to deceive them, nor by those who go against them and show them enmity. There are many, many other wordings that Imam Ibn Majah brings for this. But the question we have here is, why did he bring these ahadith in this chapter? This is a profound question because these ahadith, in the, when you read them the first time, they don't appear to be... Necessarily, it might be difficult to see where the link is with the chapter. The chapter is the chapter of ittiba' Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, following the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So it's like Ibn Majah is saying to you, the group who will be upon the truth will be the group that follows the sunnah. That's what he's saying to you. Because he's now brought this chapter of following the sunnah and he's brought one, two, three, four, five uh, hadith on the chapter of following the sunnah. All of them revolve around al-ta'ifatul mansura, the victorious group. So it's like Ibn Majah is saying to you, 
the victorious group, those people that are mentioned in the hadith, in the hadith of Muawiyah that he stood up as a khatib and he said, Aina ulama ukum, Aina ulama ukum, where are your scholars? Where are your scholars? Sami'tu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yaqul, la taqumu sa'a illa wa ta'ifatum min ummati zahiruna ala nas, la yubaluna man khadalahum, wala man nasarahum. He said, the hour will not come until a group of my ummah will be victorious or will be apparent. They'll be zahirun as well. So the first thing is, they will not be hidden. You know, sometimes these different groups, they have this idea that the people who are upon the truth, this one hidden in a cave somewhere, he's going to come out before the end of time. He's hiding in the... You, you know, even all of these groups have it. The Shia have it, the Sufia have it. The Baltiniya have it, these hidden mysticism, you know, like you, if you really want to know the religion of Allah, if you want to be saved, there's a hidden place you need to go, there's a hidden knowledge you need to have. There's, what does that go with the statement of the Prophet? They will be in front of your face, clear for you to see, easy for you to see, apparent, manifest, easy to see. Who will they be? They will not be harmed by those who oppose them or those who support them. And in some of the narrations, لا يضرهم من خالفهم حتى يأتي أمر الله عز وجل. They will not be harmed by those who oppose them until the command of Allah comes. In some narrations, لا تزال طائفة من أمتي على الحق منصورين. There will not cease to be a group of my ummah upon the truth given victory by Allah. So what do we know from these hadith about who they are? First of all, we know they are al haqq They are upon the truth. We know that they are zahirun. Yani you can, they're not hidden in, you know, invisible. We know that they are given victory by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We know that they are not harmed by those who oppose them or those who Deceive them or betray them. And there are many, many ahadith in this regard. This Ibn Majah just brings a handful. And there are actually, this, this hadith is narrated bitawatur. It's narrated by tens upon tens of sahaba narrated this hadith in different wordings and different ways and different, uh, different points. But Ibn Majah, he's saying to you, if you want to know who they are, they're the people who follow the Rasul. They're the people who follow the Messenger. And there's no doubt when you gather together the ahadith of the Firqatul Najiyah, the saved sect, or Ta'ifatul Mansura, and the victorious group, it's very, very clear that they can only be the people who follow the Prophet and his companions. Like the Prophet said, Ma ana alayhi what me and my companions are upon. That's the only group that can be saved. Every other group, they're going to be destroyed. And it has to happen. The only group that can ever be saved are the group who are upon what the Prophet ﷺ is upon, what the companions are upon. That's the only way you can be saved. We have one more hadith in the bab before we move on to the next bab uh, next week, inshallah. This hadith is the hadith of Jabir ibn Abdullah radiallahu anhu that he said 
كنا عند النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فخط خطا We were with the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم and he drew a line وخط خطين عن يمينه وخط خطين عن يساره From this line he drew two lines coming off to the right and two lines coming off to the to the left ثم وضع يده في الخط الأوسط Then he put his hand on the middle line, the one in the middle, not the one on the left or the right. He drew a straight line. Then he drew two lines going on the right and two lines going on the left. Then he put his hand on the straight line, the one in the middle. فقال هذا سبيل الله. He said, this is the path of Allah. Then he recited ثم تلا هذه الآية وأن هذا صراطي مستقيما فاتبعوه وَلَا تَتَّبِعُوا السُّبُلَ فَتَفَرَّقَ بِكُمْ عَنْ سَبِيلِهِ He said, this is the straight path of Allah. And then he recited, and the path, and this is my straight path. So follow it, and do not follow the other paths, for they will take you away from my path. Last question for this hadith. Why, or what is the relation of this hadith to the chapter heading? That following the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, because the Prophet read from the Quran, this is my straight path, so follow it, and don't follow the other paths; they're going to take you away from my path. The Hadith is clear about the benefit of following the straight path, and the Shaytan is trying to take you on the other paths. Notice the other paths are plural, but the path of Allah is. Singular, yeah, there's just one path. What's Ibn Majah telling you about this path? It's in the chapter of following the Prophet. What's he telling you about it? He's telling you this path is following the Sunnah, that's the straight path of Allah. And that's very clear because the Prophet said there is one straight path of Allah, right? He drew one path. And he said, هذا سبيل الله. This is Allah's path. And Allah said, وَأَنَّ هَذَا صِرَاطِي. This is my path. مُسْتَقِيمًا Straight. فَاتَّبِعُوهُ So follow it. He didn't say follow them. There is one path. طيب, let me ask you a question. That path. Could it be something other than the sunnah? It could not be anything other than the sunnah. Because the path is one, there's only one path. And the, the sunnah, and it can't be, the sunnah can't be on more than one path. Because there's only one path takes you to Jannah. You're not going to find anything from the sunnah anywhere else. The sunnah is that path. That's the path. It's the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. I'm going to just, I just want to read you one uh, hadith from the next, uh, from the next chapter. And it's very, very valuable because I'm not going to read all the hadith to, in this class. I just wanted to give a couple of lessons, maybe two, three lessons and just pick some hadith. But I want to read you the next hadith. Uh, this next hadith 
is the hadith of Al-Miqdam Nima'di Karib Al-Kindi radiyallahu an anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqal yushiku al-rajulu muttaki'an ala arikatih yuhadithu bihadithin min hadithi fayakul baynana wa baynakum kitabullahi azza wa jal fama wajadna fihi min halalin istahlalna wama wajadna fihi min haramin harramna ala wa innama harrama rasulullahi mithluma harramallah This hadith is in the chapter of Ta'zimu hadithi Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam The chapter of honoring and glorifying the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the messenger of Allah and being harsh with those people who go against it. That's what this chapter is about. This chapter is about honoring and revering the Hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam And being harsh Taghlid Being harsh Having ghilda Being harsh with the people That oppose the hadith The first hadith That the time has almost come Or it's almost reached That a man Will be reclining You know reclining on his His sitting place And his arika on his, uh, like a sofa or his bed, and like he'd be reclining on it. Yuhaddathu, or not yuhaddithu, yuhaddathu bi hadith. He will be told of a hadith from my hadith. Yuhaddathu bi hadith min hadithi. He's going to be told of a hadith of mine. He's going to say, between you and us is the book of Allah, Azza wa Jal. Whatever we find in it that's halal, we make it halal. Whatever we find in the Qur'an that's haram, we make it haram. So what does this person do? Sitting down, he says, don't tell me about the hadith. Don't talk to me about the hadith. Whatever we find in the Qur'an that's halal, it's halal. Whatever is haram in the Qur'an is haram. The Prophet said no. He said, whatever... The Rasul of Allah, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam made haram is the same as what Allah made haram. It's the same. Mithlu. It's the same. There's no difference in what the Prophet sallallahu what he made haram or Allah made it haram in the Quran. They both came from Allah. So this is a warning against the people and they mentioned in many uh, narrations la ulfiyanna أَحَدُكُمْ مُتَّكِئًا عَلَىٰ أَرِيكَتِهِ يَأْتِيهِ الْأَمْرُ مِمَّا أُمِرْتُ بِهِ أَوْ نُهِيتُ عَنْ فَيَقُولُ لَا أَدْرِي مَا وَجَدْنَا فِي كِتَابِ اللَّهِ اتَّبَعْنَا He says, I would not wish to find one of you reclining down on his place of sitting when it comes to him a command that I commanded or a prohibition that I prohibited. And he says, I don't know, I don't, I don't really know anything about this, but what I find in the Qur'an I follow. The Prophet Criticize this person who says what I find in the Quran I follow. He was harsh with him, harsh with the person who says what I find in the Quran I follow. Why? Isn't that true? Aren't we as Muslims what we find in the Quran we follow, right? So why was he harsh with him? Why did he say, I would never wish for one of you ever to say? Because when the person is saying this, do they mean 
we follow the Quran and the Sunnah? No. They mean to reject the Sunnah and say, look, you know, you and me, we agree on the Quran. Let's just stick to the Quran. What we find in the Quran, we follow. No, what the Prophet ﷺ made haram is the same as what Allah made haram because they both came revelation from Allah. Inshallah, next week we're going to do the same, a little bit more. We're not going to do a lot, but we're going to do selected ahadith about holding on to the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, keeping away from bid'ah, away from innovations, and, and we're going to be talking about following the, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum And many other topics inshallah So maybe two or three weeks I just thought it's such a beautiful Allah, It's a very beautiful topic And the nice thing is It's not a book of opinions It's not any This is the hadith of the Prophet The hadith of sahih Authentic hadith So we're not bringing you Telling you hold on to the sunnah Because Muhammad Tim says you should hold on to the sunnah but we're saying hold on to the sunnah because the Prophet ﷺ told you to hold on to the sunnah. And about honoring it and about being harsh with those people who go against it. Now, when we say harsh, does that mean we're always harsh? No, you have to look at the situation. But generally speaking, if you see someone belittling the Prophet ﷺ, belittling his hadith, not taking the sunnah seriously, that person is deserving of they should find you to be a tough, be tough with them. But you've got to look at what will bring the right outcome. If you think a gentle word will bring the right outcome, yeah, but say a gentle word to them. But ultimately, if you see people disrespecting the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, then that is worthy of a tough response and a harsh response to the people. And if you see how the Sahaba used to be and how they were with their children and so on, if any of them went against the Sunnah. Perhaps one of them would say لا أكلمك أبدا. I'm never going to speak to you again Because of a small sunnah that he saw He went against A small matter in the sunnah I will not speak to you again If this is how you're going to behave towards the hadith They took it seriously They gave it the most respect So that's part of what we want to learn from This introduction Maybe another two classes after this inshallah We're not going to cover every single hadith in the introduction, but just we just select a few because their wallah is very beautiful. And also, the advantage is the majority, the vast majority of a hadith in the beginning of Ibn Majah are authentic. As opposed later on, there's quite a few weak hadith in the book. But in this part of the book, the vast majority of the hadith that he brings, they almost all of them are sahih. One or two that are not, but generally sahih, 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 sahih. Like he brought many authentic hadith in this regard. So it's very beneficial, inshallah. Did we have any questions from the guys watching on YouTube? Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a, that is related to what we've been doing in a way Because what we've been talking about is the sunnah And by the sunnah we mean the guidance of the Prophet We don't mean what is voluntary So when I say the beard is from the sunnah I don't mean sunnah as in not wajib I mean sunnah as in from what the Prophet commanded you to do 
The Prophet commanded the men to let their beards grow. He commanded them to leave their beards alone. He said, Amarani Rabbi, my Lord commanded me to trim the mustache and grow the beard. He said this when two of the Persian uh, sort of representatives came to Medina and they had long mustaches and short beards. And wallahi, it's horrible when you see Muslims like this. Wallahi, look, I think, a'udhu billah. With a big mustache and a short beard. He said, and he asked them, they said, our Lord, yani our king, commanded us to grow our mustache and shave our beard. He said, my Lord, yani Allah, commanded us to trim the mustache and grow the beard. Wallah, after that, it's not right for a person to start thinking, I'm doing a course, I've got a job. Wallah, I know it's tough. I, wallah, really, it's not easy. It is tough. People come, you go to a job, they say, look, you can't have a beard, and so on. The first point of call is, not, is to stand your ground. Before you even you know, go any further, stand your ground. Many, many people are able to do uh, cooking and you know, chef courses and so on with beards. Alhamdulillah, the takeaways in the UK are full of bearded chefs and the law does not prohibit bearded chefs what do they do you have to put a beard net on yeah so you have to put a it's like a face mask but it covers your beard and it stops the hair falling out from your beard no problem put a beard net on no issues with that there's nothing islamically wrong with putting that on as for them forcing you to shave your beard you say to them this is my religion it's my religious practice and I'm not permitted to do it. And for you to ask me to shave my beard is discrimination against me and my religion. You're discriminating against me and my religion. Because you're not allowed to do that. Right? The law prohibits you from discriminating against people in their religion. And we see in the UK the ajeeb things they do to protect people's religious values. And you see that people are allowed to do this and that and the other, you know, like... At the end of the day, it's my religion. I am not allowed to shave my beard. If I am asked to shave my beard, I have to leave the course. I have no choice. There's no option. Don't tell me I know Ahmed who's clean shaven or Muhammad who's clean shaven. Okay. And he, the religion is not Muhammad and Ahmed. The religion is from Allah. My religion is that it is forbidden for me to shave my beard. Therefore, I'm sorry, I can't do anything for you. I can't shave it. I can't trim it. Except to the... The most you can trim it is to the qabda, yani to what comes from here. If you, if, that's the, if you want to trim it, I don't think it's necessary, but if you want to trim it, you can trim it to, to what is a, a fist's l- uh, length. But subhanAllah, there is no need, yani, like just tell them. And okay, I know different countries as well. You know, some countries are strict. But most countries, even subhanAllah, like I saw this happen in Emirat a lot. Where some of the employers made a hard time for the Muslims. You know, some of the employers. Alhamdulillah, Emirates, Muslim country. They look after the Muslims. But uh, some of the employers, Hindus and whatever employers, they want to make it hard for the Muslims. So they start saying, I'm not going to employ you, I'm not going to give you a job unless you shave your beard, or this and that and the other. Some brothers working in different places, hospitality, restaurants, they said, Look, if you don't shave your beard, so it's simple. First of all, stand your ground. Say, this is my religion. And I don't think you should be insulting the religion of, you know, if you're in Emirati, insulting the religion of the country. Yani. 
the national religion, the religion of the country. That doesn't sound like a good idea to me. I think you should just respect people's religious beliefs and so on. If they don't and they push you, you know, show them what you can do. So look, I'll wear a beard net, you know, I'll tie, I make sure it's always tidy, I'll make sure I brush it before it doesn't fall, the hair doesn't fall, you know, and so on. But that's what it is. If in the end they will not do it, then if you can complain to the authorities, wherever you are, Muslim country, non-Muslim country, most of the non-Muslim countries give you religious rights, you go and complain to the authorities, why this guy is discriminating against me because of my religion? And ultimately, if you have no choice in the end, leave. Because you obey Allah, we don't obey the people in that which is disobedience to Allah. Leave and Allah will give you the job from somewhere else. But inshallah, you won't need to leave. Because usually these people, if you stand your ground and you push back, they will fall into line. Like some of the schools in the UK, wallah, I was so surprised. Some of the schools telling the kids they can't pray. Wallah, school that tells their kids they can't pray, I would tell them, ah, if I was in that school at that time, <laughs> I'm praying whether you like it or not. What are you going to do? Carry me away? Like, I want to pray, I want to pray. Who are you to tell me that I can't pray? I would say straight to them, who, who are, in the nicest words possible, who are you to tell me that I can't pray? What right do you have in the law, in anything, in any human rights, what right do you have to stop me from praying? You don't want to give me a room to pray? No problem, I'll pray on the grass. I'll pray right outside your office door and make sure everyone walks over my head while I'm doing it. No problem. But I am not going to stop my prayers. So once they see from you that you're not going to back down, yeah, they realize, okay, we went a bit too far now. Yeah, sit back down. What are you stopping me from praying for? And to be honest, you don't need to be confrontational. I'm just saying that as an example, but you don't need to be confrontational. Usually, nice words, look, I'm sorry, but as a Muslim, I have to pray. You know, I don't want you to give me a prayer room. I don't want you to give me a mosque. I don't want a carpet. I just, you know, I just want you not to give me trouble while I pray. That's all. And if they don't give you permission, wallah, you find a nice quiet place and you pray there and don't care what they do to you. Just pray there. What are they going to do? That's how you, ha you, know, you have to have that respect and honor of Islam. But usually with soft and gentle words, people listen. But in the beginning, they make trouble for you because they think they can get away with it. And when they realize they can't, yeah, then they... And I would say even for the schools and work and stuff like that in the UK and elsewhere, get your local Islamic center or masjid involved like if they know how to deal with it. Because subhanAllah, it, it, it carries weight. You know, it carries weight. Like subhanAllah, even in, in, elsewhere in the world, I've been in situations where the local Islamic center will come and say, look, you know, you need to provide these children a place to pray. This is their human rights, if you want to call it that. You've got to give them a place to pray. We're not asking you for a room. We're not asking you for a masjid. We're not asking you for a carpet. But you have to permit them to pray. And alhamdulillah, if you have that mentality, you'll never have problems with the beard, with the hijab, with the prayer. Because ultimately, you've got your priorities right. Allah first and these people. You know, every, everyone else comes second. Yeah. Allah knows best. What if these people... Okay, so someone asked a very good question about parents who are opposing the sunnah. Now we said, uh, you have to take the religion as a whole, right? So you can't take a part of the religion, for example, being harsh with those who oppose the sunnah, 
and then another part of the religion, Birr al-Walidayn, just ignore it. You know, you have to, now you have to bring the whole religion together. So when it comes to being good to your parents, when it comes to being kind to your parents, and being good to your parents, then uh, there's no doubt that whether they oppose the sunnah or not, you have to be good to them. What's the evidence? وَإِن جَاهَدَاكَ عَلَىٰ أَن تُشْرِكَ بِمَا لَيْسَ لَكَ بِهِ عِلْمٍ فَلَا تُطِعْهُمَا وَصَاحِبْهُمَا فِي الدُّنْيَا مَعْرُوفَةً If they tell you to make a partner with me in what you don't have knowledge of, don't obey them and accompany them in this world in the best way. So, at the end of the day, you don't obey your parents in turning away from the sunnah, if they have, but you still have to be with them in the best way and you still have to accompany them in the best way. So that's, at the end of the day, the harshness, you can't reconcile that with Birr al-Walidayn, you have to be good to your parents and kind to them, but ultimately you have to have that feeling of intense you know, dislike of what's happening, that, that those people are against the sunnah, and you have to call them and gently bring them towards the sunnah by the permission of Allah. La wallah wa rabbil ka'ba. La wallahi wa rabbil ka'ba. They're not from the saved sects, nor are they from the straight group. The Ashaira are mubtadi'ah, dalun, mudillun. They are misguided and they misguide other people and they went away from the path of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And they're from the firaq al the groups that are deviant and are misguided. They're not from the saved sect and they're not from the victorious group. And whoever said this, wallahi, they've picked some one or two quotes here and there from people to try to you know, make it out that the Ashairah and the Maturidiyah are just another part of Ahlul Sunnah. How can they be another part of Ahlul Sunnah? When they oppose the Sunnah in Abwaab Kathira, in many, many topics of Aqeedah relating to the names of Allah, relating to Qadr, relating to Iman, relating to the Tafsir of La Ilaha Illallah, and many, many other things. And if they oppose Ahlul Sunnah in all of these things, how can they be from the Firqatul Najah and Ta'if al Mansura? And Allah knows best. From the beard, like trimming just the odd hair that sticks out. Inshallah, there is no harm in it, inshallah ta'ala. As long as it's not excessive. If there's one hair that's just sticking out, then inshallah, there's no harm in you if you want to brush it out or trim it out, inshallah. It doesn't come under cutting the beard, bi'idnillah ta'ala. Yeah, definitely the hadith about the people who will come and say that the Qur'an is enough for us, that hadith refers to the Qur'aniyun, the people. I don't like to call them the Qur'aniyun because it's giving them too much respect to attribute them to the Qur'an. Like we'll call them munkirul hadith, the people who reject the hadith, the hadith rejectors. They're not Qur'aniyun because they have nothing to do with the Qur'an. They're not close to the Qur'an from close or far. They have nothing to do with the Qur'an. So we're not going to call them people of the Qur'an. Instead, they are rejectors of the hadith. And the Prophet ﷺ foretold they will come. He said, It's about to happen that a man will be reclining, down, sitting down, reclining and saying that whatever I find in the Qur'an, I follow. Don't, don't give me the hadith and so on. Um, what is meant by 
No, it's a very good question. Well, that's a beautiful question. How can we love the Prophet ﷺ more than ourselves and our families? I'm not going to answer this comprehensively, but I'm going to give you a very short answer to it. I'm going to say, by putting him ahead of yourself and ahead of your family. And what an excellent example you have. You remember the, the example we gave in the khutbah? The example of, uh, of uh, Talha. And he was Subhanallah They were firing arrows at him They were firing arrows at the Prophet And he was putting himself in the way of the arrows Until he was struck with an arrow And he was Some of the Sahaba They were catching the arrows with their hands They were putting the hands out So the arrow will go through their hand Instead of touching the Prophet And he turned to the Prophet And he said Nahriduna nahrik ya Rasulullah he said, my neck comes before your neck, O Messenger of Allah. That's what it means to love the Prophet ﷺ more than yourself and your family. He comes first, his sunnah comes first, the deen comes first. His honor comes before your honor. That's what it means. My neck comes before your neck, O Messenger of Allah. We'll stop there. That's what Allah made easy for us to mention. It was a long class today. That's what Allah made easy for us to mention. Allah knows best. Wassalatu wassalamu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Jazakumullah khairan for watching. Please subscribe, share, and you can visit muhammadtim.com.